Hi all, today's session, or podcast even, is on gender and offending. Now, it's one of those areas that does sporadically come up uh, within examination, and if it comes up, it will come up in question one or activity one, as BTEC call it. So it could be one of the two theories that are worth 24 marks. So what do we need to know about gender and offending? Well, the first thing is that we need to know about uh, the pattern of offending by gender over the past 50 years. And this is quite straightforward. The pattern of offending is thus that men way out offend women. Uh, they commit far, far more offences than women. Uh, currently, it's on a ratio of about four to one. And for those of you who aren't good at maths, that means for every one offence committed by a woman, four are committed by a man. If we just throw around a few statistics just to reinforce just how women are under-offending, if we want to put it that way, uh, by the age of 40, only 9% of women will have a criminal conviction. So that's 9%. However, for men, it will be 32%. We know that men are 20 times more likely to be imprisoned than women, even though between 1996 and 2002, uh, the female prison population actually doubled. And if we go back to, uh, well, nearly four years now, to uh, 2018, in total, the UK's prison population was a smidge under 84,000 people. Now, of those 84,000 people, uh, less than 4,000 were women. And as Frances Heideson has, has observed, um, gen well, she argues that gender differences are the most significant feature of recorded crime, simply because if we look at men, women, we know men offend way more than women, although women are offending more. Um, when we look at the late 50s, the ratio of offending was about 11 to 1. So for every one offence committed by a woman, 11 offences were committed by men. As I said earlier, that's gone down to four to one. There's also a difference in terms of the nature of offences. And whilst women do commit the broad, you know, a broad spectrum of offences, as do men, women's offending is mainly centred around things such as theft, shoplifting, uh, and drugs offences. The most serious crimes, uh, including murder and manslaughter, are, are very much the domain of men. So female offending tends to be much lower level crimes, although, of course, women do occasionally commit murder. But it is very much um, against the, the run of things. The most serious crimes do tend to be the preserve of men. Now... A lot of the theories uh, that we um, that we have to look at, also BTEC tell us, are based on the notion of patriarchy. That this is the idea that society is and has been constructed by men to advantage men and therefore to disadvantage 
women. And I don't think there are too many people who would argue that that used to be the case. Not so much now, although people will still argue that. And I'm not going to say that, you know, come down one way or the other. I'm going to stay on the fence. But what we need to know is that patriarchy is a concept on which a lot of the following theories are based. So BTEC could ask you a question about which patriarchal theories. So let's go through them. Well, the first one is uh, Talcott Parsons. Again, we have great names in criminology. Talcott Parsons, Talcott is his first name. He proposed the functionalist sex role theory. This is where he was saying that, look, men and women have very, very defined roles within the family. So the men, they're out on an instructive role. They're out making money. They're the breadwinner, whereas women have the what he termed the expressive role. This is looking after the family, um, you know, raising the children, looking after the household and looking after the emotional needs of their husbands. Now, because of this, because women's world is sort of centered around child raising and the home, women have better links with society around them. So if all women, married women were in this position, then the married women would know each other. They would babysit for each other. They would go to mother and child events. They would be, you know, their social circle would be based on um, their gender and having children. They'd also go out shopping. So generally, the women would be far better connected to society than the men, and thus they would more have more to lose. They would care more about what people thought of them. Now, whilst women had what was referred to as well as being the dual burden of, you know, household and looking after husband, um, often this has turned into the triple shift. So that on top of raising children, looking after the house um, and husband, the women are also working. Now, what this means, both the dual burden and the triple shift, is simply that women don't have as much time to commit criminality. And certain crimes are all but ruled out. So if women are busy, you know, cooking dinner, tea, looking after children and a husband when he comes home from work, then they're not going to be out clubbing. They're not going to be out drinking. So that rules out a lot of the public order offences that are fueled by alcohol. It's also that if women are really busy um, around the home, because remember back in 1937, laundry day was an all-day event, so women wouldn't get involved in, in burglary um, because they were busy on domestic chores. So women were simply too busy. We also need to consider that um, Sutherland said, yeah, 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 girls are taught, you know, to be in the, the mould and image of their mother. However, boys are taught to be rough and tough. And we know that if you're going to be rough and tough, you're more likely to be get engaged in high risk behaviours. And high risk behaviours virtually guarantee offending by a good many of the participants. So. That's Talcott Parsons' functionalist sex role theory. And it is echoed um, within a much later theory, that of 
patriarchal control theory put forward by Francis Heideson. Now, Heideson also accepts, but perhaps a little bit more overtly, that um, the patriarchy does exist. And what she's arguing is that patriarchy actually controls women and it makes women conform to social norms. So how does it do it? Well, Heideson said there were three types of um, controls. Control at home, control in public, and control at work. Now, when we consider control at home, this is where we're really getting echoes of, of Parsons' theory, in that Heideson believes that patriarchal society has created a role for women that they are homemakers and child raisers. So just as per Parsons' ideas, women are sort of connected to society, but also they're so busy they just do not have the time to engage in crime. So that's control at home. Control in public is that when women go out is very much out of the home, is very much dictated by men, uh, and not least by the threat of male violence, and particularly sexual violence. And to support this, you know, the Islington Crime Survey found that 54% of women avoided going out after dark for fear of being victims of crime, and this was compared to only 14% of men. So the threat of male violence, and particularly of sexual assault and rape, it is like the sword of Damocles hanging over the head of women. So women are mindful of this, so that women will limit the times when they, they leave the home. What this means in practice is, again, in the evening where many offences are committed, particularly in the town centre, the public um, order related, it's often because it's fueled by alcohol. And again, if women are being very careful, then women aren't going to drink to excess as men. Um, and they're also generally going to be more careful. They're going to be together in small groups and they're going to avoid trouble. That's the theory. Now, when we get on to control at work, well, here we have um, the notion that uh, women are controlled by men, that when at work, um, women are controlled by male supervisors, and um, Hyderson argues that the majority of managers and supervisors are male, and that sexual harassment is widespread, and that not only is it degrading to women, but it is also a method of keeping women in their place, you know, so that women remain you know, the little women who aren't a threat to the supervisor or manager's roles. Now, Heideson also argued that the glass ceiling, that is the notion that there is a, um, a psychological barrier that prevents women from getting to the top of uh, companies. Think of it as the old boys club where men will prevent women from getting into the, you know, into the top jobs. Um, Heideson believes that this prevention of promotion means that women can't get into positions where they can readily commit crime, you know, such as embezzlement, stock exchange fraud, insider trading, this kind of thing. So those are the three controls that Heideson proposes. 
Now, entirely unrelated to this is uh, Pat Carlin uh, and her theory on class and gender deals. Now, Carlin went into prisons and spoke to working class women who'd been convicted for a whole manner of crimes um, and wanted to know what was it that made them offend. What she found was that most female offenders were just like male offenders. They were working class. But what Carlin found was that for women, um, there were two things that prevented women from offending. There was the class deal. This is that if women worked, they would get material rewards. They would get good standard of living. They'd have an income. And this meant that they'd have leisure opportunities to, you know, socialize with friends, go on holiday, have a car, have more independence, you know, enjoying the finer things in life. There was also the gender deal. The patriarchal ideology had conditioned women into thinking that, oh, if I have a family, this is going to give me um, emotional rewards. And these emotional rewards are, are going to be fulfilling and they're going to make me toe the line and I'm just going to be happy with life. I'm not going to do anything that's going to threaten, um, you know, this good life. So Carlin said that if you have the class deal and the gender deal, you're unlikely to offend. If you have neither, you are likely to offend. And the chances of you offending do increase if, you know, you have one deal but not the other. Okay. So... We've only really got one more before we start talking about how women's one more theory before we start talking about how women's offending changes. Now, um, we're going to go back to 1950 to the fabulously named Otto Pollock. Now, Pollock felt that, well, is it or question, do women actually really not offend at the same rate as men? And he questioned this and, and he pointed out that, look, most um police officers, judges, etc., are men. And men have been raised to deal in a chivalrous way towards women. So they'll treat women far more leniently than they will men. So how does this mean that women don't end up within the um, official crime statistics? Well, for example, Pollock suggests that um, if the police were to catch women engaging in minor, you know, petty crime, they are more likely to be given what in police terms would be words of advice, told to pack it in and go home, um, than a man would. A man might be arrested uh, or reported for, for the offence. So this way, if women are getting off with just a warning, then they don't appear within the criminal records system. They're not going to go to court. And certainly when we look at things such as the rate of imprisonment, remember men are 22 times more likely to go to prison than women. Um, and women are more likely than men to receive a formal caution. So women are less likely to be prosecuted than men. Then you can see perhaps Pollock was onto something. Although realistically, is that going to account for why the um, rates there's such a gulf in the rates of offending between men and women. Now, things have changed. Back in the 50s, women, it was, you know, uh, I think it was about 
1957, um, the ratio of male to female offending was 11 to 1, and now it is 4 to 1. And we know that female offending has been increasing. It's still low, but it's increasing. So what has fueled this? Well, uh, Frieda Adler many moons ago proposed the liberation theories thesis. She said, look, when women start getting parity with men, when women get equity, they're deemed as equal particularly um, there's an equality of economic opportunity, then you will see that what were previously deemed as male behaviours suddenly just become behaviours and that women's crime rate, offending rate, would increase. So, we live in an age where women are essentially, to a greater extent, equal to men. And yes, we know that the rate of offending by women has increased. But so what? Well, one of the things that um, could explain this increase and perhaps provides support for Adler's liberation thesis is the rise of the Ledet. Now, Ledets are basically. Um, young women and they are displaying all the qualities or many of the qualities of young men uh, in charge of uh, in terms of being um, ambitious hard working but also playing hard and they they're basically mirroring the behaviors they see from the male counterparts so they are undertaking what we could consider as deviant activities such as binge drinking, being tough, um, being physically aggressive, uh, engaging in that high-risk behaviour. And as a result, we do see increases in the rates of female offending. So there does seem to be support for liberation thesis. Now, when we come on to male offending, there's only one theory that Strangely enough, given how, you know, men do dominate in, in uh, the realm of criminal offending, there's only one theory, and that is James Messerschmitt's hegemonic masculinity theory. Now, what Messerschmitt argues is that, look, men want to adopt and display this hegemonic masculinity, which is the, the dominant and the idealized form of masculinity. It's the one that men strive to achieve. This form of masculinity is where men, we have dominance over women. We are successful. We are envied. We engage in risk-taking tales of daring do, which has us envied by men and women. Um, and of course, we're all heterosexuals. So that is apparently the ideal form of masculinity at least according to um, Messerschmitt, hegemonic masculinity. Now, <clears throat> there is a class element to this, and it is broken along class and, and also racial lines, according to Messerschmitt. Now, Messerschmitt argues that middle-class boys, they achieve their success, which, remember, is, you know, admired, 
they achieve this through academic achievement, you know, doing well at school or college, going on to university, entering a profession, etc., etc. But in order to do this, they have to subordinate themselves. They have to submit themselves to their teachers. So they have to accept that the teachers have status over them. Now, some middle-class boys, they blow off steam, but assert their masculinity through getting drunk at parties, they get involved in petty crime, you know, petty acts of vandalism, just to have that chest-thumping macho behaviour. Now, as far as working-class boys are concerned, we know that working-class boys are far, far less likely to be academically successful other than gypsy travellers, uh, working class boys are the lowest performing educationally in this country. So accordingly, their way of showing dominance and being rough and tough is by taking risks. It's by being tough, aggressive, streetwise. It's engaging in antisocial, you know, high risk behaviour. So they don't really view success in, in the same financial terms that middle-class boys do, but it's rather in the amount of street cred, respect that they get from those around them. So that's working-class boys, and I should have said working-class white boys, because when we move on to working-class boys from ethnic minorities, so from the BAME community, now it's argued they have less chance of academic success than even their white counterparts. So that they assert their hegemonic, hegemonic masculinity by joining a criminal gang and engaging in crime. This is because if crime is, you know, the thing that's going to get you respect, then you're going to engage in it and you're going to get that street cred, that respect that is so craved. Um, now, working class boys from a bank community uh, Mr. Smith argues they don't view success in purely financial terms or even financial terms at all. It's rather this street respect, the respect they get from being in the gang from other gang members and those within their community. You know, it's like, oh, oh, wow, stay away from him. He's a member of whatever. So that's hegemonic masculinity. The the head the masculinity that men apparently all crave for. Now, of course, if you have a desired top-of-the-heap masculinity, such as hegemonic masculinity, then you also have something that isn't as well-respected or equally valued. And here we have subordinate masculinity. So gay men, effeminate men, or Men who show any what are stereotypically classed as female attributes as being weak, physically weak, being emotional, sensitive, you know, in touch with their feelings, wear their heart on their sleeve, they are considered to be lesser and they will be looked down on by men. They're less likely to commit crime, but they are looked down by those who do possess hegemonic masculinity. And it's it's deemed subordinate masculinity because it's not valued, it's not wanted, it's seen as lesser. So, folks, 
that would you believe in oh 24 minutes we're coming up to is everything you need to know about gender and offending